0: Well, let me just state the obvious, I'm not Pastor Justin, he is on vacation, and he has tried to go on vacation, I believe, two or three times this summer already, so we're thankful that he was actually able to get away. And I am not as good of a speaker as Justin, but I will also not speak as long as Justin. So maybe there's a little bit of a trade-off there that would help us all, and all seriousness, no, uh, what we do have is the Word of God. If we only read the Scriptures this morning, if we only prayed as Mitch prayed the Scriptures this morning, if we only sang the Scriptures this morning, it is enough for us to be changed. It is enough for, to cause us delight in Christ. It is enough to challenge us. But we are going to look at Scripture, and we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12-17. through 17. Colossians 3, 12 through 17. I just want to begin by reading that together. We'll read it several times throughout our time together this morning. Colossians three twelve. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. in society today, that draw differing opinions. There are racial issues. There are political issues. And let me just ask you this: What comes to mind when you think of mask? We don't have to look any further than our own face to see that masks are a dividing and polarizing subject. For some. They are an obstruction of freedom. And for others, they are necessary everywhere, for everyone, all the time, no matter the condition. Even in our own church, we've seen those who won't come because they have been encouraged to wear a mask. And we see those who won't come because not enough people wear a mask. It's amazing that masks have in some way created Two identities. We've got the mask enthusiast and we've got mask rejectors. The mere mention creates diverse reactions. Now, let me ask you this What comes to mind when you think of the church? What comes to mind when you think of the church? It is no doubt the case that mentioning the idea of the church also brings the same type of diverse reactions. For some, the mention of the church is like telling a kid they're going to get ice cream. It's exciting. It's a reminder of something that they love. They are willing to alter their lives, maybe by not taking a job in another place, so that they can be a part of a church, a group of believers. Maybe they're willing to live away from family or give up other opportunities to serve in the church. For them, the church is one of delight. But for others, to speak of the church is a reminder of something that's gone very wrong. Whether it was a pastor who committed a grievous sin, or maybe it was gossip or slander against them, possibly poor stewardship of money entrusted to the church. For some reason, Mentioning the church to these people is like pulling a scab off a wound. For another group, the mention of the church is a reminder of something that they are committed to that br- but brings them absolutely no joy. After all, the meeting of the church on Sunday often gets in the way of leisure activities or maybe a sporting event. It's taking away a day out of their weekend Now, for some reason, these individuals are committed. Maybe it's out of duty or obligation. But for the most part, they're there on Sundays. They're regular attenders at other events. Uh, Maybe they even sacrificially give of their resources to the advancement of the gospel. But the thought of church doesn't elicit joy. It's like brushing your teeth. We're all committed to it, but I mean, really, how exciting is it? That's what this individual is like. And maybe there's even someone sitting here this morning that started in that first category, delighting in being a part of the church, but has since slipped into one of these other categories. Maybe one that despises the church. Or maybe the church reminds them of continual or past heartache. I think that's why Paul so often instructs us in how to relate to one another while being a part of a local church. A team of believers. And Colossians 3 provides us with truth about this very topic. It's truth for the apathetic. It's truth for the hurting. It's truth for the disgruntled, or even the neutral listener here this morning. And so I pray as we look at this text that Paul's instructions will help you to see that believers are called to joyfully display Christ's likeness as a team. And for those who are delighting in Christ, I hope this will deepen your affection for the church. So, a little bit of context Paul begins in chapter one by praising God for these believers' identity in Christ. He moves on later in the chapter to talk about, to teach a little bit about the preeminence of Christ in all things. In chapter 2, he warns these believers about false teachers, about human philosophy, asceticism, legalism, and how that can erode their faith in Christ. And so as we reach chapter 3, Paul is calling believers in the church to th- seek things which are above. We read that in our scripture reading earlier this morning. Seek things that are in Christ, not what is earthly. It's an encouragement For those to live as Christ. We even see in verses 5 and 8 of this chapter that he gives instruction to kill what is earthly in you. To kill sinful tendencies that are not in line with Christ's likeness. And in verse 10, he says, Put on the new self, which is being renewed after the image of the Creator. And as we look today at verses 12 through 17, we will see that believers are called to display Christ's likeness as a team. Paul is calling the church to action, and none of these are individual. They are meant to be done toward others, with others. And so we will walk through this passage, this text, noting three ways that the church can display Christ's likeness three ways that a church can display Christ's likeness First, we will see that believers display Christ's likeness as a team by putting on the character of Christ. And we'll see that in verses 12 through 14. Putting on the characters of Christ. Secondly, we will see that believers display Christ's likeness as a team by submitting to the rule of Christ. And we'll see that in verses 15 and 16. And then finally, we will see that believers display christ by doing everything in the name of Christ. By doing everything in the name of Christ. Look at verse 12 through 14 there. Let's read it again. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on. What comes to mind when I say the term or read the term, put on? Maybe it's put on tires. Maybe it's put on ornaments. Maybe it's Put on the finishing touches. Well, what Paul has in mind here is to put on clothes. Put on clothes or clothe yourself. Many times the clothes that we wear display an identity. Yes, if I were to walk in here with a black hat and black pants and a black and white striped shirt with a whistle hanging down, you might be able to identify who I am by the clothes that I'm wearing. I'm a referee. And the same would be true of so many other parts of society. A fireman, it brings a graphic image of what they wear. A judge, a chef, an athlete, military personnel. In these verses, there's a particular group that is to be dressed in specific clothing. Who is that group? Well, Paul uses three identifying terms to describe them. He says they are chosen ones, holy and beloved. Each of those terms is used in the Old Testament to describe God's chosen people. And we even see these terms mentioned in the nature of Jesus as well in the New Testament. Collectively, they describe a church, a community, a team that's elected by God, that's set apart for God. that is loved by God. Paul is simply restating a reality that he's already established, one that he's already emphasized in Colossians to this point. If you have your Bible, flip back to chapter one, and let's just track along and catch some of Paul's repetition about the Colossians being identified in Christ. Chapter one, verse four and five say this, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Look down to verse 21, 22. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, As you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Verses 11 and 12 in chapter 2. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Do you see the theme that Paul continually cultivates? Their identity in Christ? Even in chapter chapter 3, which we just read a few moments ago, look at verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on these things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And then listen to verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Even verses 10 and 11, just prior to what we're looking at right now, say this. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And then catch this in verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian Cynthian, slave, free. What are those terms? They're identifying terms. They're terms of identity. He says, yeah, we see these things. You could identify as these things, but that last phrase says, but Christ is all. And in all, Paul's emphasizing their identity in Christ. And our identity in Christ is the key to understanding this passage. So keep that in mind. Think carefully about the first few words in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Because you are in Christ, you should clothe yourself in the character of Christ. Put on, because you are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And so we see Paul exhorting the Colossians to put on these qualities that characterize the nature of Christ. He writes in verse 12 to put on these things. Compassion kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And I don't think it's a mistake that he lists five things here. Because if you look back to verse 5 and verse 8 in this chapter, he also has two other lists of five things that we should be killing, putting away, putting to death. Let's look at each one of these terms we are to put on. As those called out of the world and then called together to be the church we must exercise first compassionate hearts. This is a heart of mercy. That is, we should be characterized by a willingness to demonstrate tenderness and mercy toward others. Toward others in this body. Then we see kindness. We can understand kindness as the goodness of God. Concrete examples of this abound in the Old Testament, but maybe the clearest example is God's gracious attitude and acts toward us in salvation. Toward sinners. Romans 2, 4. Listen to this. His kindness is meant to lead to repentance. Ephesians 2, 5-7. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ by grace, another word for kindness, you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the measurable riches of grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Kindness is selflessly seeking the good of another and not ourselves. This is the kindness believers are called to put on. It should flow from a heart that's been transformed by Christ. Compassion, kindness, and the third character trait of Christ that we are called to put on is humility. Peter echoes this call to the church to put on humility in 1 Peter 5.5 5 when he says, clothe yourselves. Almost the exact same verse that we're looking at here. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus teaches on humility in Luke 14, and in Philippians 2, Jesus is the ultimate example, the model of humility. I love Andrew Murray's explanation of what humility is. He describes humility as the place of entire dependence on God. The place of entire dependence on God. Now this is tricky. Humility is tricky because when you think you've got it, you've just lost it. To put on humility, we must grow in our knowledge of God. We must grow in the person of Christ, in the work of Christ, in understanding how that applies to our own hearts. And, at the same time, we must honestly assess ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. So while we are learning about who God is and understanding more deeply the work of Christ, at the same time, we're assessing our own heart in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. We are also called to put on meekness. Another word for this would be gentleness. Maybe even you have a translation that uses the term gentleness. It's characteristic of Jesus' behavior toward men during his time on earth. It's also characteristic of Jesus' rule since he brought salvation without using force. He even describes himself in Matthew chapter 11 as meek. Now, our culture does not embrace gentleness or meekness. It maybe even describes that person as weak, one that lacks courage, a pushover, right? But that's not what meekness is. Gentleness, meekness actually assumes great strength, but this strength is never used harshly or violently or aggressively. Instead, it is used to protect the weak, to serve the most helpless and never exalt themselves above others. It contains both elements of consideration, Of others and a willingness to waive our own rights. This is gentleness, and we're called to put it on, which leads us to patience. Patience, which endures wrong against us, that puts up with immature conduct. This is patience. Now, Paul is realistic here, he knows we're prone to failure. He knows that he is calling us to link arms with others who are going to hurt us even while we may hurt them. We will sometimes be careless with our words and offend others. We will make choices in Christian liberty that lead others to criticize or judge. And at times, we will just see things differently. So what does this text call us to do? How are we to show meekness and patience in these moments how can we exhibit humility and kindness and mercy verse 13 it says that we are to bear with one another bear with one another this is forbearance we are to we are supposed to put up with the exasperating conduct of others rather than flying into a rage or passing along gossip, or giving them the cold shoulder, or desiring vengeance. Forbear with them. And this is not like the camp cook kind of forbearance. You all know what I'm talking about when you think of the the cook at camp. And uh, they're sitting off in the corner, arms crossed, tapping their foot, as they watch campers mixing jello with mashed potatoes and a little bit of Coke. Right? You've seen this picture. And you just know the camp director has come to that cook and said, you need to show patience with these campers. right? They're here to hear the gospel. And they're struggling. This is not the type of forbearance that we're talking about. No, it's coming alongside and encouraging and building up to full maturity. That's the type of bearing with we see here in this text forbearance. In fact, even when there is a legitimate grievance against someone, when someone does us wrong, what are we supposed to do? What do we do when our pain is magnified because of the wounds of another? Maybe another that we have grown close to in our walk. Verse 13 calls us to forgive. Forgive. This is what patience looks like. It's forbearance. It's forgiveness. And if we ever wonder how deep that forgiveness should go, we have a fantastic picture. As Christ forgave, so you should forgive. Just take a moment and consider what Christ did in forgiveness. If he has forgiven you, how can you not extend that forgiveness to others in the church, to others in your home? And just like forgiveness is a picture of patience, so the five characteristics also give us a picture of forgiveness. Think about it. In our forgiveness, Jesus showed compassion. In our forgiveness, Jesus extended kindness, leading us to repentance. In our forgiveness, Jesus humbled himself to the point of death. In our forgiveness, Jesus sowed gentleness and patience. At the heart of forgiveness is the gospel. At the heart of these characteristics is Christ. And quite possibly, the clearest word used to describe Christ's redeeming work in verse 14 is the call to put on love. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is unconditional self-sacrifice for another. And it's the crowning grace which the new man puts on. And why is it so important that we put on love? in addition to all of these other characteristics. Love, as we see, leads to full maturity or perfection. That's what that last phrase means. It binds everything together in perfect harmony. It brings it to maturity. It brings it to perfection. Each Christ-like character trait should be motivated and completed in love. Think about what we see here in first what we see in first Corinthians 13 in connection to the passages that we're looking at this morning. Listen to the first 3 verses of first Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, and you're starting to get the picture, right? I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I, give, if I give away all that I have, if I deliver my body up to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. You see, even if we demonstrate kindness and patience and humility and compassion without love, it's worthless. And so Paul says, put on love. In addition to these which will lead to maturity. I'm a big fan of Chelsea. How many of you have ever heard of Chelsea Football Club? It resides in London, England. Okay, the Edmond family plus a couple more. All right, I got to do better in my illustrations here. All right, so let's just change this up a little bit. How about Ohio State University? How many of you have heard of Ohio State? Okay, a few more people, good. All right, and, uh, and the Buckeyes. I don't know why they're the Buckeyes, and I really don't care to know, but the Ohio State Buckets. Let's say, put yourself in this place for a moment. Let's say that the coach of the university comes to you, the football coach, and says, I want you to be on our team. He invites you to be on your team. You accept that invitation, and you get a full scholarship, right? Uh, You get all of your meals paid for. You get a special tutor. You probably get a new car, but Let's just say you accept this and you get all of these different things. In fact, you're given tons of Ohio State State clothing as well. What if you showed up to a team meeting wearing maize and blue University of Michigan gear? What do you think the reaction would be? Mind-blowing. This is inconceivable. They hate each other. As part of the Ohio State football team, that wouldn't make any sense at all. You would never wear the hoodie of a rival. It's insane. In fact, the clothes that you've been given by Ohio State very clearly identify who you are. Socks, jerseys, shorts, hats, shoes, jackets, It only makes sense that you would wear those with joyfulness and enthusiasm and delight and confidence. This is what we see in our text. Jesus isn't just the head coach. He owns the team. And he plays for the team. And he's undefeated, guaranteed never to lose. And he's chosen us to be a part of that team. He's also supplied the uniform compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, love. We ought to be saying, how fast can I put that on? That's who I am. That's who I want to be. What a joy and a privilege to be able to display the character of Christ and to do it together with your teammates. Now, sometimes I think we miss the point. We may hear these things as rules or standards or burdens that are sort of like traffic laws or work protocols. Do this and you'll be better. Don't do this, it'll go well for you. Or maybe we think of these things in terms of gaining further acceptance or benefit from God if we will only work these things out. But this isn't Paul's train of thought at all. It's not his flow of thought. These do not come naturally for us. We do not produce them from our own innate ability. Instead, the way that we will be able to show patience and forgiveness and love is because Christ has extended these to us already. Because we are in Christ We are to joyfully clothe ourselves with Christ's likeness expressed toward one another for a watching world. Each of these five graces, along with love, are to be the clothing of God's elect. They show how Christians should behave in their dealings with others. Yes, with family. Yes, with co workers. Yes, with neighbors, but particularly with fellow believers. And they are meant to display Christ. So, first we see. We display Christ's likeness as a team by putting on the character of Christ. And second, we display Christ's likeness as a team by submitting to the rule of Christ. Look at verse 15 with me. We'll read 15 and 16. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart to God. Paul now sets aside the picture of clothing, but he continues to exhort these believers. The call here is for the peace of Christ to rule, for peace to rule. Rule is such an easy word to understand. Take a moment and come up with a few other words that you would use to replace rule. How would you replace rule in this text? Maybe it's the word preside. Maybe it's the word lead or direct. Govern. Interestingly, it could also be judge or umpire. Control. Reign. All of these are adequate. The peace of Christ is to hold sway over the lives of believers as they interact with one another. So what is the peace of Christ? Well, it's exactly what he brings at salvation. He reconciles the believer to God. He is the arbitrator. He's the mediator of peace. Once We were enemies of God, rebelling against him. But now we are family, children of God, because Jesus fixed the relationship by taking the punishment that God required of us, what God required of sin, what God required of rebellion. Christ is peace and he brings peace between the believer and the Father. But it isn't just privatized peace, right? It's not just vertical. Certainly that is true. Christ's peace also has a horizontal element. Look back at verse 15. Paul says that believers are given this peace of Christ, having repented and believed, and are saved into a group, a team, one body. So those who have been reconciled to God who have peace through Christ should manifest that peace to other believers. They should manifest that peace among themselves. Paul has already mentioned this idea of peace in Colossians. Col- chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. I'll read that quickly. Mentions this idea. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of creation. This is Christ. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and look at verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul is simply building on that doctrine, that truth, when he says here that peace should also reign amongst the church family. This team should function in peace. Now, we see something very similar in verse 16, a parallel, if you will, to, to the peace of Christ, only what is central here is the word of Christ. The word of Christ. The word of Christ is the message or the truth about Christ. Paul continues tying each of these elements back to Christ, and in this case, it's the word of God. So we get to this point in the text, and Paul has talked a lot About characteristics and attitudes that are relational. We could take the wrong approach. We could get the incorrect picture here because what we could do is we could say, well, if we just extend love and kindness and patience to everyone all the time, no matter the circumstances, then we're in good shape. But that's not true. Truth is essential. How essential? Well, he uses the verb, let the word of Christ dwell. Let dwell. What comes to mind when you think of the word dwell? Well, for me, it's home, right? The place I live. But if I were to flip the question a little bit and ask you, what do you remember about the word dwell when you think of Scripture? It might change it. What comes to mind when you think of the word dwell in Scripture? Slightly different, but it would get us to the same place. To dwell is to take up residence. We see it in scripture in these ways. God dwells with his people. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in believers. Even faith is said to dwell in our hearts. And then there's the opposite picture as well. The indwelling of sin. Whatever is dwelling or residing is in control. It has influence. So here we see that the word of Christ, the message of Scripture, the truth of the gospel is to be at the center of the church, residing with prominence and with influence over everything that happens. It was to be the controlling factor among their relationships. Paul envisioned a community of believers richly, deeply, abundantly saturating themselves in the gospel. The peace of Christ points us to the gospel. The word of Christ is the gospel. Why is this so important? Well, because apart from Christ, we are condemned. We are under the wrath of a holy God. Yet Christ came and lived a perfect life to pay the penalty of our sin, and he was raised from the dead on the third day so that if we place our faith in him, then we will be forgiven of our sins and declared righteous on the basis of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. We must meditate on this message again and again. It is the food that we consciously feed our hearts and our minds throughout each day. We must be a people obsessed with this message. And it's important, crucial even, that we do this individually. However, in this section of Scripture, it specifically focuses on us living together as a community. And therefore, this focus is corporate. Now, what does it look like for the Word of Christ to be dwelling among us? Well, Paul describes it here. Christ should dwell among us richly, and the method for that is mutual instruction— And warning, teaching, and admonition. And specifically here, it's addressed, or expressed, I should say, in singing. Paul wants the believers to sing. Now, I'm not sure if Paul had in mind singing exactly the way we did. It was probably more antiphonal. There was a didactic element, oratory element So, think responsive reading, singing, solos with teaching mixed in. But nonetheless, what's expressed here is singing. Now, this brings us to a responsibility. Believers are to lavishly sing. Gospel truth in song to one another. It's a beautiful means by which the whole church can proclaim the gospel together. It's an expression of how the Word of God, how the Word of Christ dwells in us richly. I uh, brought the words to the song we actually just listened to. I don't know how intensely you heard them, but think about the doctrinal truths these things represent. The church is one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. Her character of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes in one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. These lyrics are doctrinally rich. If we listen to them and think of them, they actually are teaching us truth. One one more, Come Praise and Glorify, a very familiar song around here. Come Praise and Glorify our God, the Father of our Lord in Christ He has in heavenly realms His blessings on us poured. For pure and blameless in His sight He destined us to be. And now we've been adopted through His Son eternally. Come praise and glorify our God who gives His grace in Christ. In Him our sins are washed away, redeemed through sacrifice. In Him God has made known to us the mystery of His will, that Christ should be the head of all, His purpose To fulfill. Now, if these verses are calling for the peace of Christ and the word of Christ to be at the core of who the church is and is therefore the controlling influence, what is the logical response for us? If someone is going to rule, if someone is going to reign, what must the other parties do? they must follow. They must submit. Such is the case here, and that's why Paul uses the word let or allow. Let the peace of Christ rule. Let the word of Christ dwell. He's calling us to submit to the peace of Christ and the word of Christ. Does Christ reign in your relationships, both in a corporate setting and an informal time together with other believers? What else might rule in these moments? Maybe you're offended, so bitterness rules. Maybe you're hiding your faults or focused on a squeaky clean reputation, so self-image rules. Maybe you're concerned about influence in the church, so pride rules. Maybe you are overemphasizing Christian liberty, so your own personal rights rule. Maybe you're critical of others' choices, made in Christian liberty, so legalism rules. Maybe you're craving approval, so fear of man rules. Maybe you are focused on results, so over people, and so efficiency rules. Maybe you are intent on your way of doing things, and so selfishness rules. Maybe you're overly concerned about safety and security, so fear rules. Maybe you are distant from church relationships because of past hurts, So self-protection rules. Maybe you are desiring comfort in relationships, so compromise rules. Brothers and sisters, we must put these things away. The heart of our church should be submission to Christ, peace, and his word. Let the peace of Christ rule, and let the word of Christ dwell richly. So a faith Bible church is going to display Christ's likeness as a team. We must first be putting on the character of Christ. We must also be submitting to the rule of Christ. And finally, to display Christ's likeness as a team, believers should be doing everything in the name of Christ. Look at verse 17. Do everything in the name of Christ. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. Paul wraps up this section of the letter with one of the most general, yet comprehensive exhortations in all of Scripture. In whatever, in everything, it's universal in scope, and it applies to every aspect of life. Every Christian, everywhere, every sphere, do obey act every single time in the name of Jesus. Again, we see the tie to our identity in Christ. In becoming a Christian believer, a believer calls in the name of Christ, right, and therefore, he submits to the gracious authority of Christ. He belongs wholly to him, so that everything he says, everything he does ought to be in light of the fact that Jesus is Lord. Paul is saying here, your identity in Christ compels you to action. Do everything. Now, the name by which we do something is very meaningful. Think about family life. You'll remember the classic line, who said so? Right? So, brother one comes to brother two. This may or may not be an exact representation of what happened in my family. And says, go inside and practice piano what's the next question who said so who said so right they want to know where does the authority lie the answer that comes next is the basis for action if brother 2 says me i just finished practicing that command just died a very fast death it's over but if the answer comes back mom well, then brother one is probably headed inside. And you can see with this authority of who says something is so important. The same is true in the business world, right? If you're executing a plan in the name of the owner of the company, then you're probably taking great care in how you implement. If you're covering for another employee who didn't do their job, maybe not so much. Whatever... You do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Practically, this requires us to have a mindset of putting on Christ and submitting to Christ in situations that we typically do not regard as worthy of such consideration. Fathers can look at work routines and family schedules and hobby activities in the name of Christ. Mothers can patch wounds and help with homework. In the name of Christ, employees can work not for the name of their company or even for their own name or purposes or advancement, but in the name of Christ. Pain and suffering in hard situations, even pandemics can be endured in the name of Christ. Children that are trusting in Christ, you can obey in the name of Jesus. And young adult, I encourage you to choose friends. Choose a college. Choose a spouse in the name of Jesus. And may I also call us to put off things that you cannot do in the name of Jesus, which is just as important. Please put to death sexual sin and covetousness and put off anger and malice and slander and obscene talk. In the context of verses 12 through 16, we could also read verse 17 like this. And whatever you do, church, in word or deed, singing or prayer, baptism or communion, informal or corporate gathering, hospitality or counseling, serving or forbearing, do it all, everything, in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. So as we've been considering this text as a whole, you may be wondering about one word that's been repeated but has gone unaddressed so far. That word is thankfulness or thanksgiving. It's mentioned three times in in conjunction with three different thoughts. Along with letting the peace of Christ rule, we are called to be thankful. We are called to be, we are encouraged to sing with, Thanksgiving with thankfulness. And in everything we do, we are to give thanks to the Father through the Son. The word thanksgiving goes beyond gratitude. Gratitude, right, is really an attitude, a heart attitude, and thankfulness is at least that. But thankfulness is active. Thankfulness is expressive. You can see it. You can hear it. You can feel it. It flows from a heart that is delighting in Christ. One that is relishing in the work of Jesus and what he's accomplished. As we submit and obey Christ, we do it with thankfulness in our hearts. What a glorious passage we have seen today. Extremely encouraging and yet also challenging. Paul's call to Christ's likeness is a joyful exhortation. These are the delight of a Christian to be able to put on, to submit to, and to do everything in the name of Christ. Their response of thankfulness. For many of, you, for many of us, we are so quick to allow other identities to crowd out what should be in control. Yes, I know this is true of me. Practical example, I may be a soccer coach in addition to what I do here, but it shouldn't dominate what I'm putting on. It shouldn't dominate what I'm submitting to. And by all means, I should not do everything in the name of soccer. Do you see how absurd that sounds when we put it in those terms? But we do this all the time. I mean, just think of the cultural relevance of the text. Political views should not be controlling influence of this body of believers. Another, masks have become a controlling influence. And yet, neither fear nor personal rights should be what we are displaying as a church. We are all one in Christ. One team With a common identity in Jesus. And so, in this culture of fear and tolerance and pride, let's display something different. Brother and sister in Christ, consider where you find your identity. This is key. Consider where you find your identity. Collectively, as members of Faith Bible Church, we've agreed together that Christ is our identity. And so I ask are you displaying Christlikeness likeness with other believers as Paul describes here? Are you putting on the character of Christ? Compassion and kindness humility meekness patience love are you submitting to the rule of Christ? Are you doing everything in the name of Christ? These are the concrete ways that God has given us to display Christ-likeness as a team. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, Pastor Phil, I'm in Christ. I desire to live out these truths. But how do I get there? What hope do I have if my view of church has been less than what Paul describes? First, acknowledge Where you are not displaying Christ's likeness and confess it. Acknowledge where you're not displaying Christ's likeness and confess it. Then submit to Christ in prayer. Humbly depend on Him and seek His strength to display Christ's likeness. Third, meditate on the message of the gospel. Allow it to change your heart attitude toward others. You want to be able to put these things on? Meditate on the gospel. Meditate on what Christ has done for you. And lastly, be thankful and take joy in Jesus. As we are doing that, these characteristics can overflow out of our life toward others in the body of Christ. Read about it. Think about it sing about it, talk about it, and if you're not in Christ, we've very clearly heard today what it means to be in him. I would call you to turn from your own rebellion against God, your own sin, and trust Christ. If you have more questions about that, feel free to talk to a member here or talk to a pastor. We'd love to be able to further explain that, but Faith Bible Church We are called to display Christ's likeness as a team. What a privilege. What a joy. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to consider what it looks like not only to be in Christ personally, but collectively as a church. You have graciously called us to yourself, but you've also given us instruction on exactly how, we can operate relationally with one another. And so we ask humbly that you would allow us to put on your character. That we would submit to your rule. And that we would also do everything in the name of Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen.